Hello, and welcome to Fast Forward by Commotion, your weekly glimpse into the future of urban mobility. As always, I'm your host, Greg Lindsay, Director of Strategy for Commotion, and I'm joined, as always, by Jonah Bliss, VP of Media and Marketing for Commotion. Welcome back, Jonah. Thank you, Greg. Pleasure to be here. What is our countdown to Commotion LA Live, our biannual event on the future of mobility? Uh, this year, joined by all new partners, happening virtually, of course, due to the pandemic. Uh, but I think we're going to have a great lineup. What are you excited for the most this week, Jonah? Any uh, new partners to announce? Well, what I'm excited about uh, is the LA New Mobility Challenge, our annual startup competition of sorts. Um, great group of partners this year, LA Clean Tech Incubator, New Cities, uh, the UK Consulate, uh, Urban Movement Labs, and then um, oh, I'm going to forget one. Let me make sure I have it up. You put me on the spot, Greg. Got to catch them all, <laughs> Jonah. Got to catch them all. Yeah. Um, oh, of course, our good, good friends, uh, the cool Korean kind of tech incubator group, Spark Labs. Um, and this year, we've kind of rejiggered it a little bit, focused on solving two very sticky problems. Uh, one is transporting goods in urban environments, and then one is transporting people in urban environments. So you, listener, if you have a cool startup solution, whether it's software, hardware, or just an idea, bring it to us. Uh, applications roll through the end of the month, and then uh, sell my finalist pitch to an esteemed group of judges at Commotion LA Live, and there's a pretty cool prize package this year. So uh, get going on that. Very nice. Well, to kick off the news here, oh, I would say before I do that, I want to note that our guest this week is, uh, is Avra Vanderzee. I want to make sure I get those accents right, who is the VP of Strategy and Policy for Super Pedestrian, which is the MIT Sensible City Lab spinoff of a soft beaterman out of his group there uh, that has pivoted to create Link. And so getting into the micromobility war. So Avra, who is a veteran of that herself from her time at Jump and at Uber, is going to come on to talk about their strategy going forward as micromobility emerges from the, 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 the Siberian winter of the pandemic. Um, but let's get into the news here, because when it comes to moving goods through cities, there has been a major sort of announcement from Amazon and Rivian. Jonah, what's the news? Yeah, two, two hot brands, obviously. Um, but how does 10,000 new Amazon-branded Rivian vans rolling the streets of a city near you by 2022 sound? But, well, that sounds cool, but you know what really sounds cool, Jonah? 100,000 vans by 2030? <laughs> that sounds really cool. Um, don't tell Jeff, but I'm sure there's somewhere there's a plan with a million vehicles in you know 2035. So <laughs> watch both ways before you cross the street. Well, what's interesting about the Amazon announcement to me, and I, I was thinking about this because I, I, after our uh, recent Commotion Live webinar with Kevin Webb of Shared Streets, I had a chance to catch up with him, and he was telling me that you know he's had some conversations with the Amazon folks about delivery, which you know remember just a, just it seems like only yesterday here that when it came to curb space, we were all worried about ride hailing, you know, people falling in and out of Ubers all the time, uh, but now of course it's all about package delivery controlling the, the the street, and he he noted to me that you know that Amazon, unlike UPS and FedEx, which of course have drivers who have all sorts of tacit knowledge, who are willing to pay the parking fines. I think the two of them pay $50 million a year in New York City alone as just part of the cost of doing business. Well, Amazon doesn't do that because it dispatches drivers you know, on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. No route is ever the same. And so Amazon deeply needs to understand how the streetscape works. And so they're very eager to work with cities on, can you just tell us where to park and just tell us how much it costs because we need to tell our drivers just in time. So it's an interesting wrinkle here that you know, it could be a very propulsive force 
in you know the battle of the curb here and 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 the various companies uh, past partners like Curbflow of ours uh, and their competitors Cord who are trying to map this. So and of course Shared Streets, Kevin's own nonprofit. Right. So important so, information to pass down to your subcontractor, 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 gig employee. <laughs> well, and it's interesting. We know we know from Amazon patents that they're working on like heads up glasses that tell you turn by turn instructions through the warehouse. So I'm sure they've got the same thing going for their drivers. Um, so watch this watch this space. But what else have we got, Jonah? Um, I mean, big big week for little news items. One that I was kind of watching. Cool electric story came out talking about kind of the the unexpected downsides of all the growth of e-bikes we've seen. And so it's it's obviously been a banner year for the likes of. Van Moof or Rad Power on different sides of the price point there. So, you know, they basically can't make bikes fast enough to sell them at this point. But when you suddenly have, you know, tens of thousands of new customers that might not have ever been on an e-bike before, they're going to have questions about how to assemble it, how to do basic maintenance, what happens if, you know, they can't turn it on. Um, and so when you've, you know, octupled your customer account, but maybe you haven't thought about octupling your <laughs> technician, your customer support, your help desk people, uh, it was just an interesting insight into like, oh yeah, okay. When you grow, you need to also grow your staff. Otherwise, you have a bunch of disgruntled customers who, you know, never changed a tube before. Well, it'll be interesting to see how that wrinkle plays out there. I mean, obviously, they risk the blowback there that you know the people who are marginally attracted to trying out an e-bike might walk away. But you know, but I would say the flip side, and of course, you got to get in our quota here of digs at Tesla. Um, you know, obviously, you know, Tesla's just known for its horrendous manufacturing quality. You know, bottom of JD Power when it comes to actually putting the panels together. So if the technology is sexy enough, people will put up with some of the supply chain issues and and sort of gut it out. So it'll be interesting to see exactly how many of those people from this year's you know e-bike boom and sales. Uh, will continue to persist with that. But that certainly doesn't help. Yeah, th there was. A, that reminds me, I, I saw just a little throwaway you know, tweet article kind of thing about someone who bought a brand new Tesla and basically as they were driving away, the entire glass, you know, that, that glass top that I don't know if it's the Y or one of them has just lifted off and blew away on the freeway. <laughs> so a free convertible. Thanks, Elon. Uh, but back, back, back to micromobility for a second. <laughs> back to, you know. Smaller electric devices, Ride Panda. What do you think? Yes, um, I, they have scooters. Ride Panda, <laughs> and I think of them. I think of them. They're they're out there selling scooters. What happened to Ride Panda? I feel like this is. Like I, a I just think joke. they got an amazing amount of press for uh, basically launching like a little Shopify store where they just bought a bunch of scooters and they'll resell them to you. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm pro scooter. I'm pro e bike. So I like it. I'm impressed that you know they pulled off a, a great launch. Got a bunch of kind of old. Shared micromobility heads working together, it seems like. Um, and if, if there's anything we've kind of learned that, you know, once you've tried a lamb or a bird, it's the gateway drug for buying your own. But uh, I'm just going to give a little plug for our, our friend Terranig, who kind of runs the micromobility section here at Commotion. And uh, I think his website, if you're, if you're shopping for a scooter of your own, I just like his better. Well, it'll be interesting to see how that whole model pans out. You know, I've seen uh, you know in various quarters here of the of the micromobility universe, particularly you know the uh, the temple over there with Horace and his acolytes. You know, of course, you know Horace is is very much devoted to the notion that micromobility is a service, right? That's like their core mantra. If you're going to lock into all those Silicon Valley models, and there's plenty of people in in the mobility landscape like us uh, who are just like, you know, it's cool, buy it, ride it, and it'll be really interesting to see those the imperatives between those who want to see adoption of personal lightweight vehicles, electric or otherwise, and those who are really determined to see it turn into, you know, a true massive multi-billion dollar industry. So, so we'll see. Perhaps the Ride Panda folks went out. Maybe it's just something you buy and you just use. It's less sexy in the end, but just as essential, I suppose. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. A uh, well, couple, couple more news items. Uh, I'll, I'll save some fun transit news for the next one. But uh, I think just talking about money again for a second, Via acquired uh, a delivery logistics startup company, Fleetonomy, um, looking to bolster their, I think, kind of like logistics and urban freight routing, which isn't even a segment that I knew that they were in. But uh, I don't know, kind of interesting as they've pivoted from like a, a shared kind of charut taxi kind of service to... You know, now they're more of like a micro transit provider. They've always kind of like played this weird in between role, seemingly. And so now they're branching out into, uh, I guess, you know, urban freight. I don't know. So, well, it makes sense. I mean, it seems like Via's ultimate play here, right? Is like they want to be the everything routing company, right? Like they're they're the, they're the person you go to when you need to get some figure out some on some new on demand routing of something or more efficient routing. Like their contract with New York City to you know the Department of Education there to figure out you know, more efficient routing for the school buses. Like, you know, this all goes back to like mathematics, right? Like the, the, the traveling uh, salesman problem, right? It's like an NNP <laughs> hard problem of like figuring out an optimal routing every time you, you can't do it, but you can have all sorts of math shortcuts that can help you do it as efficiently as possible. And like, that seems to be what V is interested in. You come to them if you need that sort of thing. And, you know, I've, I kind of like that they're getting out of, or, or at least they, they've, you know, sort of put aside their ambitions to build their own service for now. Obviously it's very difficult and, and keeps them away from their sort of core business here of like arming the world's public transport or fleets or anybody else who needs it with like really cool software versus keeping that sort of thing proprietary. In the end, I think it's better for everybody if that kind of tech gets out there. So, so kudos, kudos to them if they want to break into that and figure out how to deliver our stuff more effectively. Yeah. Yeah. Kudos to them indeed. Uh, but on to transit, do we want to do good news or bad news first? Let's go with the bad news first. Oh, you're so predictable, Greg. Uh, bad news. So Honolulu, which has been very slowly and very expensively building their first uh, rail system uh, for a city of its you know sort of small size, it has no, you know just very noticeably terrible congestion and obviously kind of ringed in by the ocean and the mountains. So this has been sort of on their wish list for decades now. But um, the the next leg of it, apparently the the P three, the the public private partnership, you know the magic words from few years ago <laughs> the city has backed out of it because uh i think all the bids came in way over budget and you know, the last one was a disaster and uh just just offloading all the risk to the private sector and hoping that they'll figure it out for you it doesn't seem like it's working so hot nowadays it's a shame I, I would love to read a report by the way on cities like honolulu and also like bogota for example you know mountainous cities really difficult terrain that kind of thing who really struggle with like building metros like you know this has been an infamous problem for bogota and also where transmillennio their you know their mm -hmm. famous brt network is falling apart too so you know obviously you know when you when, you, when you're stuck between the you know the devil and the deep blue sea it's going to be hard to do but but yes who would have thought that public private partnerships were not the silver bullets that the obama administration and Rahm Emanuel told us they would be when they were touting an infrastructure bank and it will be interesting to see if and when i don't mean to jinx anything here that there is a biden administration because i should note here that there was a tweet going around that the biden folks are leaking uh, to the House or vice versa, that you know that a big infrastructure bill will come down in February, one of their first agenda items if they are elected. Uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see if they go down that route as well versus just you know handing out the cash to whoever needs it. So yeah, yeah, no, and it just it speaks to I mean you know as years of public sector attrition just kind of slowly causing you know not just infrastructure rot but basically the inability to create new infrastructure because we just you know outsource it all to private third parties and you know cost control is not necessarily in their best interest that is true it's great it's a great saying that america is a post-developed nation you just simply can't develop anything anymore because 
just you know various forms of regulatory capture and whatever else just make it impossible to get anything built. See Second Avenue Subway in New York. Yeah. But all right, well, you told me the bad news, Jonas. So what's the good news? The good news, well, it's uh, <laughs> surprise, surprise. It's not in America, but uh, it's in Chengdu, uh, China's western metropolis. Uh, which did not have a metro system of any sort a decade ago. And then exactly 10 years on the dot later, they just inaugurated Metro Line 18, which is uh, an express metro, which is actually pretty relatively rare for Chinese cities uh, to have an express metro or an RER, S-Bahn kind of service pattern, uh, which is interesting because the cities are just so gigantic. You know, Even cities that you and I have never heard of have 10 million people in them. So... Obviously, great that they've been building Metro, but sometimes some long commutes for folks. So uh, Chengdu, Metro Express Line 18, maybe start something new. Very interesting. That's got to be the opposite of the 15-minute city or maybe the 15-minute express line city. So and a, good, a good thing to note there that while the rest of us are thinking about what the, what the future of work from home looks like forever, if those of us fortunate, fortunate enough to be able to do that, China just barrels onward I, with almost no cases. We've, we always think our condition here in the pandemic is universal, and yet... China just is going about China's business when it comes to that. I was going to say, we, it's, we've been waiting for 10 years to say you can get an autonomous vehicle to give you a ride. And I have to say, it is, this is that day. Waymo One is opening up to the public. No more, no more safety drivers. No more closed beta tests. This is the real deal, correct? If I, I mean, how correct. many times have you been stuck in Scottsdale just trying to get to Mesa and you're just thinking, Ugh, there's got to be a way without a stinking human getting in between me and the other side of the Valley of the Sun. That's true. I, I had, I've never had that particular thought, but, but yes, but you know, but there you go. But nonetheless there, it's, it's sort of amazing. You know, I mean, there are a lot of people who thought that, you know, Waymo would never actually get to this moment, right? Like the trendy, the trendy conventional thinking now is that, you know, that, that uh, autonomy is a way more expensive, harder problem than anyone can solve. And that general purpose autonomy was an endeavor that perhaps was doomed to fail. But Waymo got this far, and you know now perhaps it's just a business model problem. You know maybe maybe autonomous ride hailing is what no one wants, or maybe in a pandemic world it's exactly what you want, where you get in, you still have a film of disinfectant on it. I don't know. Yeah, but, have, have they just added little aerosol squirters in between rides? And if, it seems like yeah, this is maybe the the best possible moment to strike if you're Waymo. Well, we we shall see. Their pockets are deep and their valuation is high, so I will keep an eye on them. <laughs> Well, with that, when it comes to you know uh, mobility and micromobility strategy, I say this is now a good timing to bring on uh, Avra Vanderzee, who you know, in addition to being uh, VP of Strategy and Policy for Super Pedestrian, sort of leading them forward, did spend two years in Uber after the jump acquisition there. So she's got plenty of experience inside what these companies are thinking about uh, how to pivot forward from ride hailing and versus micromobility. So, so let's take it over to Avra here to hear about uh, their plans to sort of take. The innovative tech that Superpedestrian had developed for, you know, for uh, onboard diagnostics and hyper-efficiency. We had a soft beaterman on the podcast about a year ago, just over a year ago, uh, from the Moscow Urban Forum talking about what was then their business model. Uh, so let's get an update here from Avra. Thanks for joining us, Avra. Thanks for having me. So happy to be on. Well, I was to say, it was just over a year ago that we had super pedestrian founder Asaf Biederman on here. And at the time, he and I were in Moscow at the Moscow Urban Forum talking about, yeah, uh, sort of how super pedestrian had pivoted at the time into, yeah, building basically onboard diagnostics tools and sort of trying to become the guts to decrease the unit economics of micromobility to actually make the business models work. So I was, I was interesting to see at the time when super pedestrian launched Link and decided it was going to get into the consumer facing business itself, which, uh, you know, has been 
been competitive to say the least. So, so what was the thinking there? And obviously you came from one of those companies from jump. Um, so, you know, you know exactly how trench warfare that can be. So, so what's different this time, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it's a great question, right? So you had a staff who took you through the sort of patented vehicle intelligence system that was designed to solve the info gap. And as I'm sure he talked you through, you know, the first manifestation was the Copenhagen wheel, an e-bike right, entirely contained in a rear, rear bike wheel. And that went on sale in 2016. And he was always, you know, coming from MIT, uh, Sensible Lab, Sensible City Lab, and having been trying to solve transportation problems for, you know, almost two decades. He was always thinking about, you know, how can we bring more lightweight electric vehicles uh, to help cities around the world address some of the you know, challenges of urban population growth and sustainability and climate change. And so why scooters, right? I think Asaf was onto something in that scooters are wildly popular. Um, and when you look at the data, people love scooters. More than half of scooter share riders are new riders that hadn't tried a bike share program. And I will be honest, because I come from, I came from the bike world initially. I had my skepticisms about scooters because I was such an e-bike evangelist. At the same time, I had experienced the transformative nature of a new type of technology. You know, the e-bike, when we, we had people try our e-bike, they were over the moon about how magical, how easy, how tra- transformative it was. And so I was a little bit skeptical of scooters, but I had this experience of, seeing really was believing. You know, you had to really try this. When you tried out an e-bike, you would (laughs) basically never wanted to get on a regular bike. We used to joke at Jump that we accidentally ruined the regular bicycle. Um, And so I think that Asaf was picking up on those industry trends. But with this, you know, patented vehicle intelligence system at the heart of the vehicle, there was this sense that we could do things differently, that we could learn from some of the mistakes made early on about growth at all costs and really build a sustainable system, sustainable from the perspective of true sustainability from an environmental standpoint and sustainable sustainable from the perspective of unit economics. With all the diagnostics, with um, you know, enhanced maintenance, with a longer uh, life cycle and a more durable vehicle, you could bring down your operating costs so significantly that you could be profitable with much lower utilization, which is what makes cities you know, attractive to us across a wide spectrum of, of sizes. You know, We want to be a transportation solution for a number of different types of cities, addressing a number of different types of challenges. And you don't need to just be in the, you know, Paris's of the world. You can launch in places where you might have one to two trips per vehicle per day, be part of a meaningful collaboration with a city and still be profitable. Yeah. So how exactly does that work in terms of, in terms of how you're choosing to deploy? I, th- I thought it's, I think it's it, it, interestingly ironic that, um, that, you know, Link is the only scooter operator in Manhattan, but that just happens to be Manhattan, Kansas. Yeah. Uh, and you're also in Rome. I mean, very opposite. Uh, to Rome, Kansas. Italy, so, not Rome, so New York. Yeah, exactly. That's, that needs to be said. So, so yeah, how have you guys chosen target markets for this? I mean, you know, and, I mean, obviously COVID has scrambled everything there, but um, you know, why, yeah, why Provo, why Salt Lake, why Knoxville, why Seattle and Rome at the same time? It's a yeah. pretty wide mix. Yeah, I think it's a great question. So seeing the potential for the shared scooter, uh, then just a little bit more on the tech and then I'll get into the explanation. 
there was a lot of testing that then went into the actual shared scooter design, right? So um, we, the, the vehicle intelligence system that went into the Copenhagen wheel was for about four to five years, right? And then you had another two years of scooter development that included about, I would say six months of beta testing with over 100,000 additional rides to further train the scooter uh, and the vehicle on the onboard intelligence. And so we were very, very focused on the tech and wanted to partner with an operating company. We ended up acquiring a company called Zagster. And we wanted to partner with a company that had the same safety obsession uh, approach to cities in terms of compliance and partnership and focus on sustainability. And Zaxter had 10 years of operating experience uh, across, you know, hundreds of markets uh, and, you know, thousands of vehicles. And so we partnered with Zaxter and that's how we made our first foray into uh, some of these markets. Um, they were sm often smaller markets, right? Manhattan, Kansas, not the biggest, not the biggest market. But they provided an opportunity for us to further test and see how our vehicles de deployed and functioned in the real world. And then it was from there that we started to think strategically about, well, you know, we know the unit economics work now in smaller markets. We know that the maintenance output and outcomes are in incredibly impressive and we're ready to scale. And so that's where we are now. And that's, you know, now when we're thinking about decisions about um, launching in, you know, Seattle, Washington and places like Rome, we feel like we are in a position where we can choose markets based on a number of factors. And where, where do we have a city partner that we want to collaborate with? Um, where do we feel, you know, depends on the time of year. When do we feel like it's a good time to launch uh, in a potentially winter market? Um, and while we have plans to expand into dozens more markets by spring of 2021, we have a wide array of options and we're not trying to go everywhere. Our approach is not to flood the streets, figure out profitability later, expand at all costs, but really to think about what makes sense in terms of the timing, uh, the city partnership, the fleet size. And even though these markets are small, you know, we have, a, we have some really great, you know, we're really great learnings coming from them, really great experience of working with cities. And we're eager to think about a balanced approach whereby we're in big cities solving gnarly problems, but also working with some of the smaller cities to bring micromobility solutions for them as well. What's changed in the conversation with cities this time? I mean, obviously, again, COVID has scrambled everything here, but, you know, the sort of the... the well, we're going back into a second wave to some extent, but, you know, we saw some of the reopenings here. Um, you know, you obviously spent time inside of Uber after the jump acquisition. So you've, you've been on the inside of permissionless innovation there. Yeah. What are the conversations with cities like? I mean, you know, there was definitely a, a trough of disillusionment for the cities of dealing with the scooter menace and all that sort of stuff there. Um, what are the, what's the tone of the conversations like now? And, and do cities recognize, you know, what micromobility can bring to the table? And how do you, I don't know, I mean, is Knoxville and, and Manhattan, Kansas courting you? Is it something where you have to win them over? And I mean, how do you end up in a city like that? And, and what, are, what are the conversations with the city like? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, they do say that crisis catalyzes change. Um, so we're seeing that holistically, cities are changing at a rapid clip. 
in that they're focused on micromobility as part of a solution to transportation problems, especially during a crisis like a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. And there's a willingness to experiment with quick build temporary projects. I mean, we see that across a number of cities, including New York, where all of a sudden you, you know, you have outdoor dining and you have, you know, changes that start out as temporary ones that are becoming permanent. And I would say, you know, micromobility solutions, of course, are part of this. Uh, and as somebody who's been thinking about trying to solve micromobility, trying to solve transportation problems via micromobility for, you know, over six years, I think it was the past April when sort of the inevitability, inevitability of it all hit. When during the crisis, we saw cities around the world from Paris uh, and beyond, to, they began to accelerate the deployment of protected lanes. And I mentioned this, you know, earlier this week on a podcast or on a, on a TechCrunch panel, but now we have Biden's climate change plan specifically calling out e-scooters and micromobility as part of the solution. So there is this openness to micromobility as a solution. At the same time, there's a very real acknowledgement that some of the first movers haven't lived up to the potential of the industry. And that is along the lines of safety, but it's also along the lines of compliance and sidewalk riding, and it's also about sustainability. So in the post-COVID world, you know, we're seeing that trip lengths on micromobility devices, especially scooters and e-bikes, were becoming longer. The types of trips were changing. The industry was reporting more neighborhood errands and recreational trips versus commuting, obviously. Um, And so we do have some really meaty data that we should be analyzing over the next six months. Also in terms of mode shift, you know, are these new trips? Are they trips replacing cars? Um, But I think what's really interesting is that in this sort of post-COVID world, things are moving more quickly now. Or or where we hope in this post-COVID world, things are moving more quickly. Post-COVID meaning the pandemic has started but has not been solved. Um, Things are moving really quickly. And we're seeing a symbiotic and collaborative relationship with cities where they're bringing lots of different people to the table. We just had a meeting earlier this week with New York city and, you know, New York city under, under commissioner Trottenberg installed way more bike lanes than any other administration in New York city history. And they were the second mover on some of these questions on micromobility, but they're in a position to do it right. They're in a position to frame this also as part of, you know, making more space for pedestrians and what I thought was really interesting is they they brought a lot of people around the same table to try to solve the problem, not just scooter providers, but also you know new new provi- new types of providers, you know distributed charging, um, you know data aggregators, and it's just clear to me that this you know is not going away. That micromobility is here to stay, yeah. and that cities are looking for collaboration even more so than ever before. Interesting. Change, changing gears for a second, so to speak, bicycle gears. Um, obviously, you mentioned you know that you are you know yeah an, an e-bike believer. I would say I mean scooters, of course, 
uh, have been having their moment for a while. But one of the big, you know, I think breakouts of the sort of pandemic inflection point, right, has been this boom in e-bike sales. I've been seeing, you know, that Germany's past 10% penetration there. Yeah. Um, you know, we're seeing triplings of sales of that particular form. Um, so, I mean, so one, it's interesting that you're at a scooter company, as you noted yourself. But but two, I mean, you know, what, what are your thoughts on the e-bike going forward? We've all seen the video. Uh, I, think, I think it's safe to say all of us in the commotion sphere have seen the videos of those poor jump bikes being destroyed as part of the merger there, whatever conditions it was part of. Um, but, you know, but there's been this whole discussion that maybe, you know, the micromobility revolution is something, it's a personal device that you own, and perhaps it's yeah. an e-bike versus a shared scooter fleet. I'm curious, you know, yeah, if, if um, you know, if you think that is also still a strong model, that, you know, that perhaps we should be owning e-bikes instead of using shared fleets or how they might actually mesh together. Um, yeah, it's a great question. So I have to admit this. I could not watch the video, so I have, I have not watched the video. I've seen the picture. It's a, it's a bit of a horror film, I must <laughs> yeah, say. Yeah. And I don't know when I'll have the strength to do that. Not yet. Um, so uh, suffice it to say, you know, the, the, the static image was enough. Um, so my, my feeling about this is the pie, the transportation ecosystem, if you think about it in terms of a market size, there is room for many different types of companies to stand side by side. And the pie is only gonna get bigger in the sense that more people are moving to cities, transportation continues to be a problem. And we're trying to really compete here with a personal car trip, right? And so from that perspective, from the mode shift and the mode share perspective, um, I think there's absolutely room for different vehicle forms and different business models. So no one vehicle type and no one business approach is going to be able to successfully compete, I think, with the personal car and the personal car trip. And so if you think about it from that perspective, you know, I think that there's absolutely different use cases. There's different functions you know what works for somebody in the morning might not work for them in the afternoon and you see that right you know you see that across and what you see again with the segmentation between bikes and scooters is that often scooter riders were not bike riders um, you're actually t talking to a different element of the population or a different different user and I also think that one of the things that's interesting is that you do have different design considerations when you're thinking about a personal device versus a shared device. The ease, the the shared device, you, you probably don't want it to be light and foldable. You know, I tried when I tried the Link scooter for the first time. It was um, it was amazing. It felt you know like a real vehicle. It had a wide baseboard, and I felt like I you know I felt really secure in it. It's also not something I would want to bring up my staircase. And I think that that's a real consideration. And so different design requirements, different safety standards will dictate, I think, different sort of ultimate design specs. And what we see in the UK, for instance, which I think is, is pretty fascinating, is their first uh, pilot is going to be with shared vehicles as opposed to personal vehicles for scooters. And I wonder if that might have some more to, you know, more to do with kind of control and safety standards and finding ways to experiment with new form factors where they'll ultimately probably go to legalizing commercial vehicles that are not shared as well. So all this to say, you know, I, I'm thrilled to see innovation. I think that the scooter and the bike 
should live harmoniously, you know, side by side, but we'll also find new form factors. And that generally speaking, good innovation, you know, safety focused innovation that explores these new use cases is a benefit to the industry overall. Great. Well, one last quick question, and because you touched upon this here, we have a Commotion Live webinar coming up this week on the, the where mobility as a service goes from here. Um, you know, those different use cases, those different business models as they complementarize each other. Um, obviously, you know, you spent time in Uber as Uber was basically building a Moss platform, completely internalized with you know with the jump bikes and uh, and of course ride hailing. Um, what are your quick thoughts on sort of whether Moss can sort of bridge that gap and sort of you know still potentially be you know the one ring to rule them all of, of combining all the services together and whether Link would participate in, in a platform like that if, if cities were to start rolling them out themselves. Yeah, and we, we're seeing lots of different types of platforms, right? We're seeing platforms that are strictly aggregators. We're seeing platforms mm-hmm. that provide one pillar of, of among many and then, you know, have software integrations with other vehicle types. And we're seeing um, transit, com- the transit agencies as aggregators themselves. And I think that the the industry is still sort of shaking out in terms of how best to aggregate information, how to handle data sharing. I mean, our perspective at Super Pedestrian is very much that uh, we want to be part of a transportation network. We do not want to be a silo. We want to be available when there isn't transit and there, you know, there might not be transit and buses available. We want to be sometimes end to end, if that makes sense. And sometimes we're part of one, one leg of a multifaceted trip. And so it's about optionality and it's about choice. And we want to be a part of that. And so I think you do need some sort of a mass integration platform to start making it easier and convenient for users. You know, the whole notion of the shared economy um, and shared transportation networks like this is you do need reliability. And so anything we can do to be part of providing a reliable system that allows for optionality is something we're very supportive of. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Avra. Thank you. So, Jonah, it sounds like they've got some really innovative technology over there. But I have to say, is it really going to be the tech that drives this forward? Or, or, or will it be some crazy tech? Will it be autonomous scooters on this? I'm really curious, like, what's going to be the differentiator for all these micro-mobility services that, you know, packed up shop during the pandemic and now they're coming back and, like, who wins from here kind of thing. But a- any guesses? Like, what do, what do you look for in a micro-mobility fleet? I, I think, you know, whichever company invents a new color for the color spectrum, you know, that was kind of what was keeping out new entrants at this point. We've run out of colors. <laughs> um, maybe, you know, an autonomous scooter that uh, also, you know, can do your job for you as you're just a slaving away at your gig economy work. I don't know. Bleak, bleak prognostications for the future here. But if anyone has a, a, a more positive idea than I do, please submit it to the LA New Mobility Challenge. Uh, it's obviously top of our minds, solutions for moving people around urban environments, one of the two categories this year. So um, maybe someone can envision a future that's a little bit better than I can. I see what you did there, Jonah. I see what you did there. Nice way to seek that in. All right. Well, with that, I encourage all of you listeners, yes, go out there, submit your best ideas to the challenge. Uh, help us envision what we can't hear. And yes, we'll be back next week. Uh, we've got our special guest lined up. We're going to have Warren Logan from the city of Oakland to talk a bit about their lessons learned from one of the country's most ambitious slow streets programs and where they can improve and much more from there. So thanks again for joining us, Jonah. Thanks again for listening. Take care. We'll be back soon. See you next week. See you then.